again give to you that fifth term of communion. An approbation of the faithful contendings of the martyrs of Jesus, especially in Scotland, against paganism, popery, prelacy, malignancy, and sectarianism, immoral civil governments, Erastian tolerations and persecutions which flow from them, and of the judicial testimony emitted by the Reformed Presbytery in North Britain, that is Scotland, in 1761, and that is the Act, Declaration, and Testimony, and adopted by this church with supplements as containing a noble example to be followed in contending for all divine truth and in testifying against all corruptions embodied in the constitutions of either churches or states. Last time we met, we did look at several questions, and I will, I'll just repeat the questions just to, to refresh your memory what we did discuss. And if you were absent and you want to get a copy of that tape, they're available. But we answered these questions. What is history? We were looking at that phrase, historical testimony. What is history? Then we considered what is redemptive history. We asked the question, why is history important? Then we asked, what is a testimony? And finally, what is a historical testimony? We're going to continue with uh, that format of asking questions about this term of communion. And so we have four more questions this evening that we want to cover. The first one this evening is, how can inspired history be a subordinate standard in a church? How can, I, if I said inspired, what I meant was, uh, and I'm not sure what I said at this point, so I'm going to repeat the question. How can uninspired history, I hope that's what I said, be a subordinate standard in a church? Uh, most people would say inspired history, yes. Uninspired history, no way. Well, let's consider this for a moment. Let's talk about uninspired history as a subordinate standard. First of all, a subordinate standard is not an infallible rule of faith and practice. I need to make that clear. It's not an infallible rule of faith and practice. The Word of God alone is the infallible rule of faith and practice. And it is precisely subordinate. The reason we have subordinate standards, the reason we call them subordinate standards, is precisely because they are subordinate only to the Word of God, which is the supreme standard. They're subordinate to that supreme standard, namely God's Word. Secondly, a subordinate standard cannot by itself bind a man's conscience. A subordinate standard in and of itself, simply as the declaration of a church or as the declaration of another man, cannot bind a man's conscience. Only the Word of God can, in and of itself, bind a man's conscience. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 23, we find these words. Ye are bought with a price. Be not ye the servants of men. Don't be enslaved to men as to being bound in your conscience by men, following men as they speak in and of themselves. Also in 2 Corinthians one twenty four, we find the same doctrine taught. Now notice, this is the Apostle speaking on behalf of the Apostles, and he says, not for that we, that is, we Apostles, have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy, for by faith ye stand. See, even the Apostles speaking in and of themselves 
could not bind the consciences of people. Speaking on behalf of God, they could, because it was then not them, but the word of God which bound their conscience. And so only God's word can do that. God alone is Lord of the conscience, is what our confession of faith says in chapter 20, verse 2. Now, this is contrary to the Romish view, wherein the decrees of the church bind the conscience of man in and of themselves, just by virtue of the fact that the church decrees it, it binds the conscience, uh, according to the Romish church anyway, it binds the the conscience of, of members of the church. Simply because God, according to Romish doctrine, has given such authority to that church to do so. Their doctrine teaches God has given them that authority to bind men's consciences. That is not what is taught uh, in our standards, however. That is heresy. That is to require implicit faith. Believe what I tell you to believe as true because I tell you. Because I say so. That's implicit faith. Thirdly, a subordinate standard can only bind the conscience because it is agreeable to the Word of God. Only because it's agreeable to the Word of God. Thus, it is not the doctrines nor commandments of men that bind the conscience in a faithful subordinate standard, but rather it is the Word of God which that subordinate standard accurately reflects that binds the conscience. Fourthly, we're going to tie this in in just a moment with uninspired history, but I'm still kind of laying a foundation as, as to the whole idea of subordinate standards. Fourthly, a subordinate standard never has absolute authority, but rather only a conditional and derived authority from Scripture. That is to say, it is only authoritative because it is conditioned upon its agreement to the Word of God. That's the condition. And it derives its authority from God's Word as it accurately represents God's Word. But when a standard or subordinate standard faithfully declares the truth of God's word, it is to be believed. Not for the authority that is within itself, but for the authority that is from God's word, which it represents. Therefore, fifthly, all faithful subordinate standards are really helps or aids to our understanding and to our application of God's word. Now, tying it in, sixthly, with uninspired historical testimony. Thus, uninspired historical testimony may be a subordinate standard. Just like the uninspired confession of faith is a subordinate standard. So, uninspired historical testimony may be a subordinate standard, so long as that historical testimony is agreeable to God's word. To argue that uninspired history that is agreeable to scripture cannot be a subordinate standard is basically to subvert and undermine all uninspired creeds or confessions that we can't use them at all because of the fact they're uninspired. And so we're driven back, if that's the position, to simply a position of saying that my creed is the Bible. In which case, as we've said in the past, all of the heresies of the past would say, that's my creed too, but I just interpret the Bible this way, that way. And so there we go again.
Another question, another main point here, moving on to another question. little different spin. How can uninspired history be a term of communion in a church? Now we're moving from uninspired history being a subordinate standard to a term of communion. I want to make a few distinctions here. So we need to talk about, again, what are terms of communion so that we understand the nature of this question. First of all, terms of communion refer to a church's testimony wherein a church declares what it believes. And I might stop here for a moment. There are three parts to a church's testimony. We're going to, uh, to look, uh, mention those very briefly. Declaration or confession of what it believes. Second, argument. In other words, defending why that's the truth. And then thirdly, historical testimony. Applying it. So, let me go back now to my definition of terms of communion. Terms of communion refer to a church's testimony wherein a church declares what it believes. Declaration. Defends these beliefs from Scripture. Argument. And applies what it believes through the lives of faithful witnesses and martyrs. History or historical testimony. It's just a brief definition for what terms of communion are. Secondly, thus terms of communion form the very reason for a particular church's existence, distinct from all other professing Christian churches in the world. Terms of, com- uh, of, uh, terms of communion define why that church exists separately from all other churches that there are on the face of the earth. For if there is no necessary distinction, this is a very, very important point. This whole section here is extremely important. I think it is so misunderstood today, and a clarification on this point would help clarify many, many other issues. If there is no necessary distinction between two churches then they are obligated to profess their union. If they, in fact, um, don't have distinct and different terms of communion, then they are obligated to be joined together. Particularly if they're in the same nation. And if they are not in the same nation then they need to seek the nearest union possible. And so you see, it is a church's distinct testimony that separates it from another church. And by that testimony, a church declares why it believes its confession to be right and why it believes all other churches who disagree with that confession to be wrong. That's what terms of communion do. They define why you exist separate from everyone else. Thirdly, thus, every particular church, every distinct particular church, whether a denomination separate from another denomination uh, or uh, an independent church that's separate from another independent church, every particular church must have a testimony that makes it distinctive. Now, that testimony may be written or it may be unwritten, but nevertheless, there is a testimony as to why It's distinct from other churches in order to justify its own existence. And it must believe, this is a point that follows on it upon the heels of what we've said, and it must believe that church that's separate from all other churches has a separate testimony. It must believe that all those churches that don't agree with it are sinning against the truth. 
That's a necessary corollary. They must believe that the other churches are sinning against the truth or otherwise there is no justification for them to exist as a separate church. And again, I would just mention in regard to that, if you have, uh, say, two national churches, or, or, uh, a church in Nation A, that's a, a national church, and a, uh, a church in Nation B, that's a national church, uh, if they are both, say, Reformed churches, though they may not have the same courts, they ought to, and I believe they're obligated, to seek the nearest union that they can possibly have together, which would mean, uh, as was uh, the case in, the, uh, in uh, Scotland, England, and Ireland, that there would be a covenanted reformation. And that was the purpose of the Solemn League and Covenant, to bring them to the, to the nearest uniformity in doctrine, worship, and in uh, government. Fourthly, now here is where I believe uh, most, most churches destroy with one hand what they have built with another. Here you have, on the one hand, Church A that has said, whether implicitly or explicitly, that Church B is sinning in the following areas of belief and whatever differences separate them, that Church B is sinning in the following, following areas of belief and that this church, Church A, and its members don't have fellowship or communion in those errors. They have communion, they believe in the truth, but not in the errors of that church. However, though they have either explicitly, uh, explicitly or implicitly understood that relationship, this is where the contradiction occurs. If a member from Church B visits one Lord's Day and desires to have communion with Church A around the Lord's Supper, it is fine. In most churches, and probably in Church A, it is fine because after all, this member of Church B is a Christian. Do you see the contradiction here? I'm not saying that the person's not a Christian. That's not the contradiction. Here's the contradiction. If the members of these two separate churches can sit around the Lord's Supper together in Christian communion, how do they possibly justify the supposed differences in doctrine that separate them into two distinct churches? And will prevent them from joining and worshiping together. They can visit and sit around the Lord's table. Or they can sit in a worship service or attend all the other activities of that church. Why can't they then join together in one church? If they can worship together once or twice or three times, why not all the time? What then is the moral justification for them being separate from one another? If they can go back and forth from one church to the other. <clears throat> Fifthly, furthermore, if Church A believes, here's an illustration of what I'm saying, if Church A believes that the fourth commandment, that is of Sabbath keeping, is a duty binding all believers binding not only believers, but even unbelievers, binding all people, and that to violate the Sabbath is a sin against God. Thus, presumably, if they believe that it was a sin against God, they would discipline the flagrant and obstinate violation of this commandment within their own church. 
just like they would uh, via, uh, discipline the violation, say, of the seventh commandment. If someone um, uh, was committing adultery uh, and was obstinate in that particular sin, that that would also lead to discipline. So a church that believes that Sabbath violation or Sabbath breaking is a violation of God's moral law, they would as well uh, discipline someone for flagrant and obstinate disobedience in that area. How then could such a church invite a member from church B which does not believe in Sabbath keeping to the Lord's Supper? In other words, how could church A invite a stranger to the Lord's Supper with the public sin of Sabbath breaking in his life for which a member of church A would be disciplined. It makes no sense. This is a purpose for terms of communion, to make these distinctions, to indicate this is what this church believes to be the truth, and those who disagree we believe are in sin. And though we're not saying that they are, are not Christians, we believe that, that they are sinning in the, this area. And therefore, if we would discipline someone in our own congregation who is a member of our church for, say, violating flagrantly and obstinately violating the Sabbath, we can't invite someone to the Lord's table who's from outside of our congregation who's doing the same thing. Makes no sense at all. Sixthly, historical testimony is a term of communion within this church. We proclaim it, we defend it, and we apply it throughout history. And then finally, under this question, without historical testimony, one could not keep certain commandments of God. Think about it for a moment. Without historical testimony, uninspired historical testimony, one could not keep certain of the commandments of God. For example, how could we keep the fifth commandment to honor our parents without uninspired historical testimony? How would you know who your parents were? without uninspired historical testimony? How would you know which parents to honor without uninspired historical testimony? See, there's nothing inspired about a birth certificate or someone telling you those are your parents. You're taking someone's word that's not inspired. And so, in order to keep the fifth commandment, we rely upon uninspired historical testimony. It's the only, it's the, all we have. There's nothing in the Bible that says, my children are mine. That their parents are Greg and Lana Price. There's nothing in the Bible that says that. And so, they're relying upon his uninspired historical testimony in order to keep the fifth commandment. Well, the same thing applies not only physically but spiritually in that we, in order to be faithful and to follow our spiritual mother and father, in other words, a faithful church, we need to understand who our spiritual mother and father are by their historical testimony. What have they declared about themselves? What did they believe? How have they defended what they believe? How have they applied what they believe throughout history? And comparing that to the Word of God. And by that we determine there is a faithful historical representative of our spiritual mother and father as to the church of Jesus Christ.
And therefore, we should walk in their footsteps. We should identify with them. Another uh, example as to how one could not keep certain of the commandments of God without uninspired historical testimony. How could we rightly keep the ninth commandment wherein we are commanded to speak the truth in human courts by taking testimony from witnesses without using uninspired historical testimony? You find in Deuteronomy 17.6 a word about how courts are to take testimony. This is based upon, again, the ninth commandment. Deuteronomy 17.6 At the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses shall he that is worthy of death be put to death. But at the mouth of one witness he shall not be put to death. And then uh, just one other New Testament reference. In 1 Timothy 5.19, as it applies to accusations brought against elders, it says, Against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. You would not be able to have any, render any judgments. You would not be able to defend the righteous, to clear the righteous, and to judge the wicked apart from uninspired historical testimony. It's absolutely necessary to use uninspired historical testimony, again, in keeping God's commandments. And as we apply that spiritually again, what if we were seeking to know as a church whether a church from the past was faithful and was worthy to be followed? How would we discern that? Well, from uninspired historical testimony, by gathering witnesses and comparing what those witnesses say to the Word of God. Another example is that the Scripture commands us to try the spirits and prophets. How can you try or test the spirits or prophets apart from historical testimony, uninspired historical testimony? 1 John 4.1 says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Again, in 1 Thessalonians 5.20 and 21, it says, Despise not prophesyings. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. Prove all things. But how can you try the spirits, the prophets? How can you prove them apart from using uninspired historical testimony? You cannot. A couple more examples. How can we obey the ninth commandment again to defend the reputation of our neighbor? Whether that neighbor is living or whether that neighbor is now dead. How can you defend his reputation against unjust slander unless we have recourse to uninspired historical testimony to know what our neighbor has said, what his accusers have said, and whether he was true or not by comparing that to the Word of God, his testimony. You know, we are required to defend the reputation of our neighbor when he is unjustly accused. Well, we have neighbors that have died, faithful martyrs and those who contended for the truth. They are our neighbors. And we are required to defend their reputation. And we 
can only defend it as we use historical, uninspired historical testimony and then compare that to see if it agrees to the Word of God. And finally, we are commanded, and we looked at these earlier uh, last week, we are commanded to follow and imitate our faithful forefathers. Many, many commands in the Word of God which tell us to follow in the footsteps of our forefathers. For example, and I'll just give one, you can, you can uh, uh, look at that list from last week. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. But how can you follow Paul unless you know what Paul is doing in uninspired history? In other words, I mean, much of what Paul did was inspired history, but uh, also much of what Paul did was uninspired history. And uh, uh, removing oneself, that's not simply a command to follow Paul because we find other passages, let me just uh, prove this point, which say that we're to follow not simply uh, those in inspired history, but even in uninspired history. For example, in uh, Hebrews 13.7, it says, Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. But how can you do that? Unless you have an inspired historical testimony to see how they walked, to see whether it was agreeable to the word of God or not. But we're also, this is the second half of this last illustration, we're also commanded not to follow the example of those who have fallen away from the truth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where you have the example of the Israelites who during the wilderness wanderings went after uh, and followed after idolatry. It says in 1 Corinthians 10.7, Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So we're commanded in many passages to avoid and not to walk in the path and not to follow the example of those who stray from the truth, but to imitate the faith of those who do walk faithfully. But I submit to you again, we cannot do so apart from uninspired historical testimony. So we cannot fulfill many, many. This is just, an, uh, just a few examples. We cannot keep the commandments of God apart from uninspired historical testimony. And so to have, therefore, historical testimony as a term of communion is not unwarranted. Because, again, we cannot keep God's commandments apart from historical testimony, uninspired historical testimony. All right. Just two more questions and we'll be through for this evening. Why are we especially, according to this term of communion, why are we especially to approbate the contendings of our Scottish forefathers <clears throat> Why is that specifically pointed out? We do, and we might note this uh, before we answer the question, we do contend for and defend the faithful martyrs and witnesses throughout history who contended for the truth of Jesus Christ. But why do we especially contend for the uh, faithful Scottish uh, forefathers? Well, let me give you two reasons. First of all, because our church, Puritan Reformed Church, our church traces its distinctive ancestry 
and heritage back to the Scottish Covenanters and their faithful testimony, first of all. We look upon them as being our forefathers. And second of all, because this period in history, the period of the Second Reformation in Scotland from the years 1638 to 1649, in our judgment, represent the period of greatest corporate sanctification that the church has yet to attain in doctrine, worship, and government since the time of the apostles. The greatest period of corporate sanctification. And that relates not only within the church, but how it extended this reformation to nations as well. Where, where do you find in extra-biblical history uh, three kingdoms bound together by a covenant in order to bring about reformation of the true Reformed religion as was done in Scotland, England, and Ireland, and which was in the process of being accepted in Holland and other Reformed churches in Europe? Listen to the uh, Solemn Lincoln Covenant, the way that this is worded here. It says, With our hands lifted up to the Most High God, do swear that we shall sincerely, really, and constantly, through the grace of God, endeavor in our sev several places and callings the preservation of the Reformed religion in the Church of Scotland in doctrine, worship, discipline, and government against our common enemies. Now, it says, I'll stop for a moment, it says there that they were swearing that in their several places and callings that they would preserve the Reformed religion in Scotland. Not reform, but to preserve. In other words, it's saying that the, Reform the Reformation in Scotland had already reached such a height, such an attainment, that now it was required that they preserve what was accomplished. Not that they could not grow anymore, but the, the point that they were not to backslide, to slide backwards from the attainments that they had already reached in Scotland. But then it goes on to say, not the preservation, but it goes on to say, and I quote, the reformation of religion in the kingdoms of England and Ireland in doctrine, worship, discipline, and government according to the word of God and the example of the best reformed churches. And so we see by this brief excerpt that religion, the reformed religion was to be preserved in Scotland and was to be reformed in England and Ireland. And, and just to, to illustrate how the covenant here, the Solemn League and Covenant, is using historical testimony, it says, according to the word of God, that's our supreme standard, but then a subordinate standard, and the example of the best Reformed churches. That's historical testimony. And the final question, what about the act, declaration, and testimony as a document then? Let's just uh, very briefly uh, talk about that. First of all, it is an historical testimony written by the Reformed Presbytery of Scotland in 1761, which has borne a faithful witness to the contendings of faithful churches and witnesses to the truth in Scotland. It would have probably been written long before that, but they did not have a presbytery until this period of time because all of the faithful covenanted ministers had uh, been persecuted, uh, had been slain, uh, and had uh, uh, died 
uh, of old age. This is after the period of uh, Macmillan, 1761. Macmillan uh, was the uh, primary author of the Arkansas renovation, but he had died. And uh, uh, so uh, the historical, the, the Reformed Presbytery finally had two ministers uh, so that they could actually form a presbytery by this time. During the time of Macmillan, they didn't have two ministers. He was the, uh, the one faithful covenanted minister uh, that was seeking to, to preach and to uh, uh, shepherd uh, the covenanters in Scotland. But now they do in 1761, and this is their historical testimony. Secondly, uh, specifically in this term of communion, uh, we'll find uh, errors and false practices that are testified against. And uh, they're mentioned in the term of communion itself as these. Paganism. Uh, the uh, Act, Declaration, and Testimony testifies, bears witness against paganism. Uh, if you have read the Act, Declaration, and Testimony, you'll, you're familiar, no doubt, with the early part of it where it tracks the uh, early history of Scotland and, it, and the, pagan, the pagan influences uh, that uh, were in Scotland. And just general unbelief as well uh, is, a, is a form of paganism. Uh, the next uh, uh, error... Uh, testified against is popery, which is simply Roman Catholicism. And the next one mentioned is prelacy, which is the episcopacy of the Church of England, the prelates, that uh, hierarchical order, the top-down type of government that imposed so much uh, of its false teaching and false practices in worship upon the church as uh, it was an Erastian, uh, uh, as we'll look at in just a moment, that's another error, but uh, as the prelates took their orders from uh, the monarch in England. The next one, uh, error that is testified against in the Act Declaration and Testimony is uh, malignancy. What is malignancy? Well, that refers to uh, those who backslid from their covenant keeping, from the national covenant, the solemn league and covenant, those who broke covenant and sinned against the, the covenant they had made with God. Uh, they uh, did not, no longer honor that covenant. That is what is referred to as, as malignancy. The next is uh, sectarianism. Sectarianism refers to uh, separation from the true Reformed religion as it was established in Scotland to form various other splinter groups off of the true Reformed uh, religion. Now, those who remain faithful to the true Reformed religion, even if they are in the minority, it's not a case of who has the most representing its position, the least being the sectarians and the, and the majority being the real and true church. The issue here is who has remained faithful to the truth. Those who depart from the truth are the sectarians. They're the separatists. Not those who remain faithful, even if they are a minority. Was Elijah and the 7,000 who did not bow the knee to Baal, were they the sectarians? Was Obadiah who hid the prophets of God, was he the sectarian? No. And so... It's those who remain faithful to the truth who are sectarians, or who are not sectarians. Those who depart from the truth are the sectarians. The next uh, error that is testified against uh, is stated to be immoral civil governments. That is, uh, civil magistrates who habitually and flagrantly violate the law of God thus cease to exercise lawful authority. 
those who habitually and flagrantly depart from God's moral law cease to exercise lawful authority in their realm. And uh, therefore, they impose all kinds of, uh, of uh, heinous laws established on wickedness, not established on righteousness. Well, this act, declaration, and testimony testifies against uh, immoral civil governments. The next one is stated to be Erastian tolerations. Erastian refers to Erastianism, refers to the unlawful intrusion of the civil government into the doctrine, worship, and government of the church. You see, the civil magistrate does have a duty to promote the reformation of the church. He is to, his sphere has to do with things concerning the church, but not in the church. That pertains to the, to the ministers and elders of the church alone. And he is to protect the one true reformed religion. He is to establish it as the religion of that nation. That's his duty and responsibility. And therefore to defend it against all that would seek to destroy it or undermine it who obstinately do so. And finally, the, the term, fifth term of communion speaks of this as being what the act, declaration, and testimony testifies against, against the bloody persecutions that flowed from magistrates and was perpetrated against faithful martyrs and witnesses, men, women, and even children who stood for the truth of Jesus Christ. That's what the act, declaration, and testimony in summary is all about. Two more items and then we're finished this evening. Thirdly, I want to say about the Act, Declaration, and Testimony, because we are not saying it is an inspired document, we do not believe that everything in the Act, Declaration, and Testimony is worded as well as it might have been. We're not saying that it's worded just that there's no improvement possible to the Act, Declaration, and Testimony. Nor are we even saying <coughs> that... Uh, uh, some of the uh, biblical references that have been used to support certain issues are the best references that could be used. Never, nevertheless, we do believe that the Act, Declaration, and Testimony gives a faithful rendering of the contendings of our forefathers for the faith. And then finally... Those who agree with us that this is a faithful testimony of how Christians should stand for the truth, that is, the act, declaration, and testimony, that it is a faithful testimony of how Christians should stand for the truth and against error, not only in the past in Scotland, during that period of time of persecution, but also in the present and in the future, we invite them, we wholeheartedly invite them to unite with us in seeking to bring, by God's grace, a covenanted reformation in North America and throughout the whole world. We implore them to unite with us. We may be small, but we're not small because we want to be small. We would love to see Many, many join with us in this testimony to promote a covenanted reformation based on faithful historical testimony, which is agreeable to the Word of God. That's all for this evening. That finishes our discussion of historical testimony. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need.
SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.